A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Supply chain woes are particularly bad in Britain because of a short supply of truck drivers. Our correspondent hitches a ride, finding a grueling, tedious, precarious profession and one lorry driver who wouldn't do anything else. And the American state of Maine has a new law on the books enshrining the right to food. It's intended to help with high levels of food insecurity, but a vague statute letting anyone be a farmer has some troubling implications. First up, though. After two months of quiet negotiation, Germany has built a governing coalition. Die Ampel steht. SPD, Grüne und FDP haben sich in den Verhandlungen auf einen gemeinsamen Koalitionsvertrag verständigt. The traffic light is on, said the next Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, who will take over from Angela Merkel next month. His Social Democrats party color of red will be joined by the Free Democrats, yellow, and the Green Party. Gone from this traffic light government are the Christian Democratic Union, the party of Mrs. Merkel, marking a swift shift in government from center-right to center-left. Mr. Schultz successfully pitched himself as the continuity candidate, but some big changes are already baked into the coalition agreement, from fiscal matters to social ones. What was expected to be a really rough and unpredictable period of coalition negotiations after the election actually seems to have proceeded pretty smoothly. Tom Nuttall is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. I think there is a sort of a sense that after 16 years of conservative rule under Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, there was a lot of unfinished business in Germany on everything from digitalizing the state to upgrading the citizenship laws, which were archaic. This new government has attempted to forge a kind of common narrative of modernization. And so now three parties are, are part of that, that common narrative. What role is each of them going to have? Okay, so it will be led by the Social Democrats who came first in the election in September. The Green Party will be the second largest party. And the Free Democrats, who are a small liberal pro-business party, will make up the numbers in third place. The ministerial portfolios have been divvied up amongst the parties. Um, Christian Linder, who is the leader of the FDP, the Free Democrats, he is going to be Germany's next finance minister. Es gelingt, die breite Mitte des Landes durch unterschiedliche Maßnahmen zu entlasten. That has some people inside and outside Germany a little bit nervous because Mr. Linder and his party have always positioned themselves as on the hawkish side of the fiscal debate. On the Green Party, the Green Party have two co-leaders and both of them will take important ministerial portfolios. Annalena Baerbock, who was the Greens' candidate for the chancellorship, she is now set to take the foreign ministry. She will be Germany's first female Foreign Minister. Und wir haben für die größte Herausforderung unserer Zeit die Klimakrise mit diesem gemeinsamen 
And she has a lot of expertise and experience in foreign affairs. Perhaps more interesting, though, is what her co-leader, Robert Habeck, will be doing. We He's going to be in charge of a new kind of jumbo economy and climate ministry. And here, I think one relationship to watch very closely inside this new government is between Mr. Harbeck as this new climate and economy minister on one hand and Mr. Lindner, the finance minister, on the other hand. If they can get together behind this kind of common mission, it's just as likely, though, that they will find themselves at loggerheads. Mr. Harbeck wanting to spend money on the energy transition and Mr. Lindner being very reluctant to open the spending taps. So I think that relationship is going to be a crucial one inside this new government. And what about the new Chancellor, Mr. Schultz himself? How is he going to balance those powers and and stave off those kinds of fights? So Mr. Schultz has always liked to present himself as a great consensus builder, rather in the mould of the Chancellor that he's about to replace. Um, And there's some good evidence for that, um, particularly when he served as mayor of Hamburg, the city he comes from. Obviously, there's a lot more at stake when you're running a federal government, not least in foreign policy, where he doesn't have a great deal of direct experience. But I think having someone with an instinct for consensus building at the helm of that government is probably the sort of figure that you want. So I think there are some grounds for cautious optimism there. But we do always need to bear in mind that this is an experiment, both because it's going to involve three parties rather than the traditional two, and because these parties come from very, very different places on all sorts of different issues. So it's going to be a big task for Olaf Scholz to hold this government together. He's probably better placed than most German politicians would be to carry it off. And he replaces a a chancellor who is also known for consensus building, particularly on the on the European stage. I mean, what do you foresee in in terms of the, the new government's foreign policy? Olaf Scholz on the campaign trail, I wouldn't say that he evinced a great deal of interest in some of the big foreign policy challenges that are confronting the next government. Olaf Scholz has made it clear that um, he will see his priorities as domestic, on climate, on energy, on public investment, on boosting the minimum wage, on social policy. Obviously, a lot of these things are dear to the heart of his party, the Social Democrats. The big question, of course, is how he responds to unexpected events that will cross his desk as they did Angela Merkel's regularly. That is perhaps the biggest unknown that's attaching to Olaf Scholz, what sort of foreign policy crisis manager he might turn out to be. But there are some crises kind of already on Mr. Scholz's desk. What of those? Yeah, so the honeymoon for this coalition is going to be very brief. COVID is raging again in Germany. We have thousands of people dying a week. We're breaking records every day for the numbers of new infections. And there are calls, among other things, for a compulsory vaccination program, rather, they've just imposed in Austria. This is going to confront Olaf Scholz and his government on day one in early December. There is a long-running, outstanding question on Nord Stream 2, an extremely controversial gas pipeline that runs from Russia to Germany that is disliked in large parts of Europe as well as the United States. That issue has not been settled. And there's also um, the question of inflation. Germans hate inflation and it's running very, very high. There are predictions for a 6% inflation rate in December. So all in all, there's going to be a lot on his entree as soon as he enters government. And as soon as he enters, after 16 years, Mrs. Merkel departs. She remains really popular, though. Are are Germans anxious about that transition? 
So I've always had the feeling that the rest of Europe is more nervous about the imminent departure of Angela Merkel than Germany is. And it's not that difficult to understand why she's been at the heart of all of these crises during her 16 years as chancellor. Europe needs to have a strong Germany and it needs to have a chancellor with the instinct for consensus building that Angela Merkel had. I think Olaf Scholz probably does have that instinct. And his government is certainly aware that the rest of Europe has great expectations for for the incoming government and certainly will rely on it to hold Europe together. Whether Olaf Scholz is up to that job will be one of the big unanswered questions. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. We'd still very much like to hear your thoughts about the intelligence, what you like and what you don't. Have your say in our poll at economist.com slash intelligence survey. Just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In Britain yesterday, nearly 50 drinks companies sent a joint letter to the government warning there could be a holiday shortage of alcohol. If you know anything about Christmas in Britain, you know this is serious. The Wine and Spirits Trade Association blamed supply chains, in particular a national shortage of lorry drivers, truckers. Britain's Road Haulage Association estimates the country is now 100,000 truckers short. Thanks to the pandemic, this kind of pinch is being felt across Europe and America, but it's particularly acute in Britain, where Brexit has been added to the mix. Will Caldwell writes for 1843, our sister magazine, and has been to meet one of those sticking with the profession. So Barry's a a trucker from Manchester. His dad was a trucker, his granddad was a trucker, his brothers drove trucks too. He's got trucking in his blood. He um, used to ride around in a truck with his granddad and that really kind of inspired him to take up the profession and, you know, he's done it for 26 years. I looked at the world outside and I thought, what could I do? And my granddad said, if you, Barry, if you drive a truck, you'll never be out of work. Never. Because things always need moving. And that stuck with me, being a kid. And I still say it to this day and a form of trucking called tramping, which is particularly arduous, which involves kind of living out of your truck for days on end. And and Barry will do runs of 22 days at a time or three weeks or so living out of his truck, um, sleeping on the side of the road um, in his cabin. And that's the life he leads. You've got to have determination in this job. You have to have it. Or you just wouldn't like doing it, you know. And sometimes you don't succeed in getting to where you need to be. And it's a bit deflating. I've been there myself, but as you get older, then you turn around and you think, now, well, tomorrow's another day. Mind. 
Barry's in incredibly proud of the work that he does. You know, if anyone understands how important trucking is, it's it's him. You know, it's the rest of the country that maybe has overlooked it. He sees himself as a vital part of um, the supply chain and takes great joy in um, delivering the things that people need every day and, and keeping society ticking. During the pandemic, he was delivering PPE and antibacterial soap. He's delivered iron girders that helped build the shard. And he told me when he is in London, he looks up at that building and he feels proud. When I drive down into London, I'll actually look over there and I'll think, I remember when they were building that. You know, and it makes you smile. Spending a day with Barry on the road was, you know, it was a tough day. You know, I met him first thing in the morning, about seven or eight, and we didn't park up for the end of the day till like 10 or 11. And that, as far as Barry is concerned, was a good day. We got back to where we wanted in time for a, a beer before bed. Driving is incredibly tough. You're kind of stuck with what you've got on the side of the road. Barry told me that the shower facilities are terrible. Loads of truckers really complain about this. He says sometimes it could be 150 truckers at a truck stop just for a couple of showers. You know, you're stuck eating whatever food's available. You've also got to pay quite a lot to stop there at all. And the security's bad, so people steal stuff from their trucks. As soon as you hit traffic, the first thing you do is you're looking, how long have I been driving? Right, I'm going to be here. Where's the next service station? And am I going to be able to reach it at this speed? Probably not. What am I going to do? At the end of the night, these drivers might not be able to stop where they want. They might not even get home at all because they're incredibly monitored. There's a, a machine called a tachometer in the truck, which keeps track of how long they've been driving. And there's super strict regulations on how long you can be driving before you have a break. And if you exceed those times by even a minute, you can be fined very heavily. So when a truck driver kind of realizes they're hitting their limit, they need to stop anywhere and that's really crappy that means you know stopping somewhere maybe miles away from home and maybe not getting home at all and all these things just add up to kind of a pretty hard wearing life i'm always a great sayer of don't go over your time don't go over your driving time doesn't matter what the office is saying or what the customer is saying at the end of the day i always tell new drivers do not exceed your hours because at the end of the day it's your license not theirs yeah. And it's dangerous work. Barry can name a truck driver that he knows who's died for every year he's been on the road. Barry's brother was disabled by an accident that he had working while loading a truck. This is par for the course for, for truck drivers and they really feel like this hasn't been kind of acknowledged. Another thing, you know, Barry felt very strongly about was that people don't really respect truckers um, in the way that they used to in, in previous generations. He describes situations where you'll deliver milk to the shop and then someone will come up to you and tell you, oh, you can't park here. People just see trucks as a nuisance on the road and, and people don't really appreciate that they're kind of the lifeblood of, of the entire economy in a way. But despite all this, Barry finds ways to get through it. He, he does genuinely love his work. Truckers have a kind of pretty dark sense of humour. Lots of these guys have found an outlet on TikTok. Even in TikTokers, how's it going? It's Baz the Trucker, day 24, in the big lower house. 
Barry has a TikTok account in which he kind of shares the world that he's living in. And I think it's obviously quite cathartic for him to do this on a day-to-day basis. It keeps morale up. I've been to Monmouth. I'm on my way to somewhere. And then Abergavenny, say that one. And then Hereford. So obviously we've got all these shortages of stuff going on in this country and, and a shortage of drivers. One reason to spend time with Barry was to try and understand like why that might be happening. And obviously he has a lot of views on this. He feels like Brexit obviously has caused a, a pinch, but Barry reckons this has been going on for, for years and years and years. This shortage has been building up. So COVID caused a backlog in the testing system, which helps them license new truckers. So that has been difficult. And Brexit has caused a whole bunch of European drivers to leave this country. But the shortage was there beforehand. And Barry really blames um, a recent tax reform for, for kind of knocking back the numbers of drivers. This has made it harder to register as a limited company and work as a, a truck driver. You, you know, it's forced people on payroll and as a result, their real-term wages have been knocked back as a result of having to pay slightly higher tax and, and national insurance. And Barry and, and, you know, other truckers I spoke to, this is the thing that they feel like really had a big impact. COVID and Brexit have just created a perfect storm that's obviously led to this disaster year for the supply chain. Um, from an outsider looking in, I would say driving past trucks every day, you, people don't realise how much actually goes into this industry. I mean, the thing is, is you can improve facilities, you can increase the pay, but the fact of the matter is, is, is truck driving is always going to be a, a pretty tough job and you've got to want to do it. Barry talked about how one of his sons, he hoped, would kind of follow into the profession like him, but he feels like young people don't want to do it. There's easier ways to earn similar money. Barry put it kind of fairly succinctly when he said it's not a job, it's a, it's a lifestyle. And, and having spent a day on, on the road with him, I can really see that. I, after kind of 12, 14 hours or whatever driving, I was done. My back ached, I was broken, I was exhausted. I just didn't really want to look at a, a motorway any longer. But Barry had another two weeks of that. Morning, TikTokers. How's it going? It's buzzing, wazzing. I'm here at Compiègne Futieri. But, you know, Barry at least has found peace with the challenges of the job. He's found meaning on it. When he's in town on the weekends, he says he you know, he likes to watch people kind of going around the shops buying things, and that makes him feel like he's doing a good job. Turkey, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie, much of the food at Thanksgiving meals today will be New England specialties, harking back to some of the things those hardy pilgrims allegedly ate way back when. But the New England state of Maine is changing how those regional delicacies can be grown, or raised, or plucked. Soon, more Mainers will have the chance to be thankful for their very own harvest. From growing crops to raising cattle, anyone might be able to give it a go in their own backyard. It's all thanks to a new state constitutional amendment that enshrines the right to food. Mainers now have the unalienable right to grow, raise, harvest, produce, and consume the food of their own choosing. It's not quite clear what that means. Rosemary Ward is The Economist's Northeast U.S. correspondent and is based in New York. The language is vague enough that it can mean a lot of different things to different people. But it's the first law of its kind in America. In May, it was approved by the state lawmakers, overwhelmingly. 
And then earlier this month, 60% of voters opted to change the state's constitution. And so who backs this law? Why do they think it's necessary? Well, it was actually a motley crew of proponents. Billy Bob Fockingham, who's a lobster man and Republican state legislator, sponsored the amendment. He said he was worried about overregulation of food as long ago as 2010. The thing that really caught my attention was when a farmer was selling raw milk to a few local customers. Nobody got sick. They wanted to come buy the milk from the farmer and uh, everybody was happy. But the state came in and shut the farmer down and uh, sued the farmer for selling raw milk. He said that the, the primary reason he wanted this amendment was that it would give Mainers more ownership of the food supply. 90% of the state's food is imported, so proponents were worried about having access to food. Voters were worried that many of their neighbours are hungry. Maine's food insecurity rate is among the country's worst, and the nonprofit Why Hunger called the vote a transformative step in ensuring the protection of food as an unequivocal basic human right. So people believe then that this this amendment, that this right that's been enshrined is really going to make a, a real difference. Well, some are worried about that impact. In theory, it sounds wonderful. Everyone should have a right to food. But in actuality, it's not clear what that means. It, it could open up towns to legal challenges over local zoning and other ordinances. Anything from hunting laws to food programs could be challenged. Rules like the one in Portland, which is the state's largest city, allows residents a maximum of six hens and no roosters, could be ignored or challenged in court. I mean, we could even see cows in front gardens. Others are worried about animal safety. I mean, we could suddenly have people who don't have the space or the means or the equipment to deal with farm animals and the environmental impact. A lot of people haven't even thought about what this could mean to the water supply. Runoff could impact sewage systems. And a lot of farmers, especially potato farmers, are worried about the risk of invasive species. So the view is this this could basically entitle anyone to be a kind of subsistence farmer, but but clearly not everyone's going to do so. No, I mean, I think the proponents of the measure have this sort of lovely libertarian meets pastoral ideal in their heads. And for Billy Bob Fockingham, he's more concerned about controlling the supply chain and supporting local businesses, especially after COVID. I think that people are more aware than ever that it's not good policy to be depending on food from faraway sources when you don't know how it's going to get there rather than depending on local food production. And that's what we want to see more of here in the state of Maine. But Maine already has a very strong local culture of supporting small food processors. The state has a relatively small food industry and the state likes and protects those producers. The state constitution already gives farms property tax breaks. Over 100 towns have food sovereignty ordinances, which means that producers in those places can sell directly to customers offering unpasteurized milk without a license. So a lot of the bill's opposition thinks this new amendment is unnecessary as the state already has a strong farming protection culture. So there's some merit to the idea then that that this amendment didn't really need to be passed, I guess. It was created for a problem that doesn't exist. It doesn't provide extra money, doesn't even provide training for these new would-be farmers or even solve the problem of hunger, which is why most people voted for the amendment. Rosemary, thank you very much for your time. Lovely to talk to you, Jason. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.